Hello, everyone, and welcome to The View from Venus. My name is Mary Churchill, and on today's episode, I am joined by my co-host, Meg Palladino, and our guest expert, Blanca Vega, assistant professor and graduate program coordinator at Montclair State University in Montclair, New Jersey. In today's episode, we'll be talking with Blanca about her work on color evasive frames used in higher education and strategies for supporting faculty advancement, especially for women of color. Welcome. We are so excited about this conversation. So thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation and, you know, I love your podcast too. (laughs) Thank you. Well, and Meg's going to, like, I don't know how fun Meg's going to be today. It is her birthday. So uh, (laughs) let's be fun. It's March. The sun is out. (laughs) Today's question is, what is your favorite scent? Scent? Oh, that's a great one. I love lavender and vanilla. Mm-hmm. I'm not, and this is interesting. I don't like lavender by themselves by itself, and I don't like vanilla by itself. But together, for some reason, drives me crazy. I love the scent together, but on their own. But that's the way I am about croissants. So I love like almond croissants, but almonds I'm not too crazy about. Croissants I'm not that crazy about. But, but together, it's I don't the know. best. It's just magic. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Meg, what's yours? So I kind of have two. If we want to go floral, it's jasmine. Mm. You know, it's sort of like a nice flower scent I discovered later in life, I think. Uh, Reminds me of Tunisia. Because there's like lavender or jasmine flowers everywhere. You always get these little jasmine bouquets to put behind your ear or as a necklace when you go. When we go every summer. Or another scent that I really love is like when... Someone starts cooking and they're like sauteing onions and maybe garlic and olive oil. You know, like some really good food is coming. You know, I was going to say jasmine too. And you know why? So Meg first turned me on to jasmine tea a long time ago. I think we were having jasmine tea the day that <laughs> that we started planning our blog at Inside Higher Ed, which then this gave, that, that was the jasmine tea conversation. Do you remember that? And I did house cafe. So that was my first introduction to jasmine tea, which smelled so amazing. And so I thought jasmine tea, but I also thought Earl Grey tea. I love the bergamot in Earl. I like how you mix the scents with the tea. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, smart in New England. So it's like cold still, and that's that strong scent. When I was younger, I really liked the scent of the men's cologne gray flannel a lot and so that is also something that stuck with me oh my god what a great like i love sound so what a great way to start Meg. thank you yeah thank you for that so i am going to start with our first question which i think will be the one that resonates quite a bit with our listeners you have written about experiences of women of color in faculty positions at our teaching oriented institution Yes. What strategies can you recommend for both for individuals and institutions to support faculty advancement, especially for women of color? Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for that question. When I was approached to write the 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 chapter, I was in the thick of earning tenure, you know, trying to figure out how to raise, you know, my three-year-old during COVID and my stepchildren during COVID too. And so, you know, I was really, I was really scared. You know, I was really scared to that I wasn't going to earn tenure. 
when I started at Montclair, I when I was offered the position. So let me let me take a step back. So I um I was nine months pregnant when I I was asked to come in for the job talk at Montclair. Nine months pregnant. So you know I let everyone know this was happening, and they were like, sure, sure, sure. Let's you know that let's set up a time on the day that I was supposed to show up. My doctor said that I was actually in labor. I was three weeks early. And so I had to forego the job talk. And what I really loved about the committee, you know, who was hiring me, they they didn't bat an eye. They said, you know, let's try to schedule, you know, hopefully in three weeks you'll be okay. You know, and when I got to the job talk, they also were able to, you know, shrink down the days because I was breastfeeding. You know, they 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 were really worried that I was wearing high heels. I thought that was like they were like, are you sure you're comfortable? Like they wanted to make sure I was comfortable. You know, they wanted to make sure that, you know, that if I had to, if I had to, you know, make sure that my son was okay. They gave me all of that time. And it was really my first introduction to how institutions could support, you know, mothers and, and, and women who were mothering at the time, you know, particularly in that early stage of my being a mom. The, you know, where the intersections, you know, really, you know, really begin to help me understand how institutions could further support us, right? The reason why I chose the term scholar mommy um, is because I do identify as a daughter of Ecuadorian immigrants, Latina in the United States, Latinx. And so, you know, when I was younger, I would hear the term mommy a lot. Like, I, you know, it was a cat call, you know, for some of us. In our homes, it was also a term of endearment, right? But then I actually had a son who would call me mommy, right? So I'm literally like crossing the street in New York, you know, being cat called. And my son, I remember yelling, mommy because he was hungry. So, you know, I use the term mommy, M-A-M-I, because that's how we spell it in Spanish. And it and it allowed me to really think and consider of the ways that women of color, you know, are, you know, how we are, we are almost, our bodies are not considered productive in the academy unless we are writing, right? Unless we are publishing, unless we are doing research, and now that's part of our job, right? So it's something that I figured came along with all of this. But what I didn't know was how to manage all of that when I had a child who did not allow me to sleep at night because he was only, what, 10 months old when I first started, you know, my faculty position. On top of that, I was teaching three courses. So I was never a teacher. I was an administrator for about 16 years prior to that. And so I, I knew how to be a great administrator. I didn't know how to be a good teacher, right? So here, I, and you know, I came from a research one institution. So I was taught how to do research. I was a qualitative researcher. I, you know, my expectations for publication were very high. And, and so when I came to Montclair, you know, I think that, you know, the, the level of, of support you know, became, was minimized because I was just expected to do my job without really figuring out how to do it all well, right? And I was expected to do that in order to earn tenure. 
So in this article, I really sort of lay out what those intersectionalities look like, right? One that continue to oppress women of color in the academy. You know, we we are, you know, care caregivers, you know, for many of us, you know, we are caregivers and we are in in university settings that typically do not have a large number of other women of color faculty who are on the tenure track, right? So, you know, your the experience is very isolated and, you know, and and also very scary because I, you know, I thought to myself there's no way I'm going to be able to earn tenure with all of these like, you know, what my, you know, my colleague and friend Sasanya Jones at Howard what we're calling, you know, what we're saying is what everyone else is saying, right? Is like this triple pandemic that was going on. What I found helpful and what I think institutions really need to continue to support is this idea that if they're in the business of knowledge production, they need then they need to support us with producing that knowledge, right? You know, and, and that could mean a number of things like lowering teaching loads, for example, for at least, you know, on non ten for at least tenure track folks, right? You know, I think right. if you've got to produce, then what? Well, I was a, I have it. like I was the kind of person you know, that I was up till midnight working, right? And then once I had my son, I was done by 7 p.m., right? And there is, you know, this this burnout that you experience, but physically because you're not sleeping. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this can happen to anyone. Especially if you're nursing, you're also like feeding another also feeding another human being, right? So, yeah, and, you know, and I think, you you, you know, for for folks who are in schools of education, we teach after 5.30. So that kind of schedule for, you know, for folks who are, you know, who are nursing, who are, you know, taking care of uh, of children, you know, really, you know, it, it's very tough. I was told, you know, I was told to that maybe I need to find additional support, like as in daycare longer than 7 p.m. And I was like, not on this salary. <laughs> on the salary that you all are paying me, there's no way I can pay for additional care. Right? Who wants to? I mean, you want to spend time with your kid. I, I found myself really putting up some strong barriers. Yeah. And, and so, right, right, right. And that was, and it was hard for me to then, you know, also teaching about, you know, racial equity and social justice issues in the classroom added another layer to that. So not only was I, and you know, this was at the height of the Trump era too. So not only was I worried about my own personal safety, which I needed to be because there were actual threats, right? to so my job from students who claimed that because I was teaching about these issues of social justice, they were calling me disorganized. They were calling me unfit to teach. And I was feeling unfit to teach. I was feeling unfit to be a mom because my, you know, my kids were like, we're our institution in a red and blue state, right? It is not a blue state. Right, right, right. And so all of that, you know, really sets up a, you know, a, a person on the tenure track for failure. It really does. And, you know, unless and even when you're talking about it to administrators, even when you're talking about it to other faculty, because they individualize it, right, they don't know how to support you. They're offering soup recipes yeah. or offering, you know what I mean? Like or offering you know, and, and this is well-intentioned folks, but it's like, no, can we talk to our, you know, I don't think that there's anything we can do about it. We can't minimize our teaching load, but, you know, but maybe there's other ways to do it. And when, when you know, COVID hit, 
Now we were on Zoom and things were a little easier in that respect, right? So there's all of these layers, right, that we know the institution can move toward, right? But it only happens, unfortunately, when, you know, a global crisis hits as opposed to, you know, the individual faculty member that, you know, everyone is claiming they want to support because of diversity issues, because of the mission for equity, but they don't know how to support that one individual, you know, person of color, you know what I mean? Who, again, you know, who's the only one in your in, in your department who's untenured and you don't know how to do that. You don't know how to support that person. You know, it's it's very it's very telling of where we are at the organizational level. Well, and I also I think this takes us actually really nicely into Meg's question, because there is this you haven't used the word hypocrisy yet, but I will say <laughs> This hypocrisy, especially with well-intentioned, and that's in quotes, people can't see my fingers, right? White folks, especially in higher ed student affairs. So Meg, hit it. <laughs> yeah. So you've also written about color evasive frames that are often deployed by higher education and student affairs professionals. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah. So, you know, these are ideologies that serve almost as organizational maps, right, that inform our thinking, but not just inform our thinking, but could inform practices, right, that, that we believe are for the good of the institution, right? And, and because we're also not trained to be critical, right, think about everything that's going on in our society right now that is devaluing the idea to be critical, right, to be critical, to be woke, you know, is is sort of being used as a pejorative, right? But so we're no longer able to be critical of the practices, but also practitioners don't have the time. One of the things that I was really insistent upon when I was, you know, when I was an administrator in higher ed and now with my students is, you know, really telling them to be intentional about taking their lunch, for example. They need to take a break, go outside of the institution, you know, in order for you to to be able to think and 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 to to think about how to be critical of the practices that you're engaging in daily, right? So, what racial ideologies, you know, what they do is that they serve to really help maintain the status quo, but they can also be served to you know to disrupt, right? to disrupt processes, to disrupt tasks that are determined by the institution. And so one way that, you know, my my studies, what they've revealed, you know, is that higher education and student affairs professionals often delegitimize what's happening when, when it comes to race and particularly when it comes to racial conflict by applying, you know, certain rationales, right? And these rationales are supported by these color evasive ideologies. Things like, for example, history, right? A student affairs professional is on a campus for more than 10 years and can speak to how bad things were 10 years ago versus today. So why should students complain? We didn't have a diversity office back then. Look at what the students are doing now. So they're not necessarily doing this because they're evil or ill intentions, right? They're doing it because they have a frame of reference, right? That suggests that for some, that their time was tougher, that these kids have it much better, 
right? When I say kids in quotation marks, because, you know, that's often the language that we're using, almost, again, minimize the experiences that students have in the moment during that time, right? And so, you know, the other ways that we, you know, the other well, the other study that we did, Dr. Roman Liera at Montclair and, and Mildred Boveda, Dr. Mildred Boveda at Penn State, was that we also found that color evasive ideologies were used, you know, to maintain whiteness within institutions that are minority, you know, that that's supposed to serve minoritized students. And but and the way that it specifically works in Hispanic serving institutions is by employing Latinx folks, right? Who, you know, someone like me who grew up with Latin American ideologies of whitening who grew up with Latin American ideologies of elevating this melting pot that was devoid of blackness, right? And then so and so we're not just doing this to minimize students' experiences, but by doing so, we're we're maintaining and elevating whiteness within institutions. I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah, and and a color line, right? Yes. This idea of color line and bringing that forward. You know, I think a lot of white folks don't even understand the concept of a color line, right? And and I would say, and I would argue, and this is what I'm finding with my with my work, right? Is that, um, you know, we're this is what makes us all complicit, right? Racism, you know, affects all of us. White supremacy affects all of us, but it targets some of us, right? And and so we have to figure out in what ways are those of us who are targeted, how are we being affected by this? Right. And in the ways that white supremacy affects all of us is, you know, how do we think about it? And I think that the organizations, the work on organizations really support, help us think about, you know, not, you know, not making excuses for people, but supporting their work toward organizational change and racial justice. And the reason why I think it's really important to consider how we all could hold color evasive frames and ideologies is particularly important for those of us who are doing racial justice work. Because we can, you know, for for many of us who continue to do racial justice work, we all have blind spots as well. And I say that, you know, specifically looking at the Latinx population, right, who in the United States, you know, continue to be used you know, as as pawns, right, in white supremacy, right? We use organizations, you know, historic Latin American organizations that will that will that will uphold, you know, criteria like English only, right? That will uphold criteria like, you know, hiring, you know, you know, white faculty, you know, to elevate their their reputation. Right. You know, who will believe that research that is done by people of color for people of color is not good enough for the institutions. Give you one example. One example are testimonials. Right. So to talk about the autoethnographic work, you know, and we have wonderful feminist scholars. You know, I can think of, you know, Monica Taylor, for example, at, at Montclair, who's done work on self self-reflection. Right. In 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 education and. But that work, and those of us who are doing work on testimonials, I use testimonials, you know, for for a couple of pieces in my work. But the but but I'm constantly, and my colleagues and I, we always, you know, talk about this tension: is how will this work be received in the academy? Right? Our work 
our narratives are not enough, right? And so then we go back to our earlier question about how do we support students at the organization, how we support faculty at the organizational level when we're not considering that individual stories are not enough. Right. 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 And or some people's individual stories told Correct. by some people. Right. Like it is, you know, you, because I think when you say that earlier, you talked about qualitative work and I think of anthropology. Right. And and just the, and this is like too long to get into right now. But the reception of something that is an oral history for right, like ethnography versus testimonial. Right. Like just so interesting, which me, they're they're part of the same group of qualitative research, right? There are different ways of coming at it, but right. some ha- there's a hierarchy even within that, right? Well, it's not it's not also a coincidence that testimonials, you know, are used and autoethnographic work are used for, you know, political reasons, yeah. right? It's used to really to speak out against a system that's oppressive. So it's not it's not a coincidence that then these forms of 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 qualitative research are devalued. Right. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. Blanca, thank you. That was awesome. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with Ariana Gonzalez Stokas, equity, inclusion, and diversity expert and author of the recently published Reparative Universities, Why Diversity Alone Won't Solve Racism in Higher Education. Thank you for listening.